Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. Welcome to Dan's Talks. My guest today is Liz Lang, known in the fashion industry, uh, backward, forward, and everywhere for designing she's done, which I think she's most proud of. And uh, also, she's an author and uh, the, the uh, I guess, producer, I guess you'd say, of a long-standing uh, TV series called Just Enough Family, which has to do with her uh, parents and herself, and it's quite quite a, a a thing. Welcome to the show, such as it is, Liz. Um, most recently, she bought um, a very famous mansion in um, East Hampton, which was home of the uh, Edie and Big Edie and Little Edie Beale. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to buy that house and a little bit about Grey Gardens, which is what it was called. And we became famous as a result of a documentary that was made in 1975, a long time ago now, when it was completely in disrepair and disreputable. And living in it, this mess of many cats and raccoons was this mother and daughter of uh, one of the well-to-do families that was related with Jackie Kennedy. Uh, yeah. So it was funny. I I had grown up uh, with a house actually around the corner. My parents' house was around the corner from Grey Gardens. We were on Lily Pond Lane and Grey Gardens is on West End Road. I, you know, I was young and I really don't recall being aware of it. A lot of people say, oh, you must have grown up as like a super fan. No, I mean, not, not really. And but uh, my my husband and I were renting houses in East Hampton. That house came up for rent. I basically said to the broker when I saw sort of just a picture of it, and I knew, of course, the documentary, and I knew where it was located and how fabulous location is. I basically said, I don't need to see it. I will rent that for the summer, you know, sight unseen. <laughs> At the time, it was owned by uh, Sally Quinn and Ben Bradley. Uh, he of Washington Post fame, and she also sort of an author and hostess with the mostest in D.C. Um, they owned it, and they used to rent it out for the summer. And uh, so we rented it. Uh, they had bought it from Big Edie and Little Edie, and they had really heroically uh, restored the house and set it down in 1979. So we rented it. I love the house. I love the property. I love the gardens. But what I love most about it, forgetting the provenance, the provenance is super cool. I mean, of course, I like that. But what I really liked about it, and Dan, I know you're a longtime Hamptons person, so you'll know what I mean, is that it feels like the Hamptons of today bears very little resemblance to the Hamptons of my childhood in that all the sort of old shingle style Hamptons, quote unquote, cottages have been torn down. And there are these new houses that almost feel dropped from the sky on very, you know, barren <laughs> pieces of property. And I'm not criticizing it. It's just not the Hamptons that I am familiar with. So this house felt very, because it hadn't been torn down, it was built in 1898. It felt very much like the houses that I was used to seeing. And I always joke around. I mean, you know, 
I'm Jewish. My family's Jewish. We had a modern Charles Gwakmi house, but all my waspy friends, which the Hamptons really was in the seventies had these rambling cottages and I always liked them. So anyway, I loved the house. I love that it had been ruined. And when it came up for sale, which I didn't know what happened a few years after we rented it, we decided uh, to buy it. And even though Sally and Ben had done an incredible, incredible job saving it in 1979, uh, you know, th- this point it's 2000, I think 16. And the house was really, you know, wasn't great gardens, but it was in need of a major, major overhaul. So, and I like a project like that. As you said, I'm a fashion designer. I have a brand called Fig that I love designing for. And so at the same time, I loved the idea of getting to kind of, you know, really restore this house to what I thought it's, you know, great, you know, to bring it back to its glory years. And we spent three years doing that. Um, so that's a long answer. The only time I recall being in the house when Ben Bradley and Sally Quinn owned it was when George Plimpton held a concert, a classical concert in the gardens. And the waiters with silver trays walked around giving out uh, um, mosquito uh, <laughs> things so you wouldn't get bit up during, but you got bit up anyway. And uh, it was beautiful then and it's beautiful now. And in its heyday when it was famous and uh, several movies have been made about it, yeah. books have been written about it. Uh, I think there's, there's children's books. There's all kinds of things about the time when these two women lost, lived there for 25 or 30 years in total disarray and uh, finally um, became an icon for a long period of time. And I'm, I'm glad you bought it. Uh, <laughs> it certainly is a, a lovely place. Tell me how you wound up, uh, started out and got interested in maternity fashions, which is, I know, was your first career. That was my first career. It was quite unexpected. Um, I went to Brown University. I majored in comparative literature. I thought I was going to be a writer. Turns out I'm not a writer, but I um, I was working at Vogue magazine, really, though, not in the fashion department in the, you know, I was working for the books and culture editor writing. And but somehow while I was there, I met a designer, a fashion designer. I really loved what he was doing. I basically, he was small, he had no money. I said, I don't care, you don't have to pay me. You know, I'm 22 years old. I just mm-hmm. want to come be around this and uh, be an, you know, an apprentice, whatever, whatever uh, you would call it. So I left Vogue. I went to do that while I was there, not considering myself a designer at all. I had this idea. My friend started to get pregnant. I was newly married. I was thinking about getting pregnant, but I had not yet been pregnant. But I had it on my mind. It was that time of my life. And I noticed that my friends would come to our little showroom and they would squeeze themselves into any anything he had. And they would talk about how there were no good maternity clothing. So this was oh. like, 90, yeah, this was like 1995, 96, 97. And I was like, you know, this is interesting. And I looked around and I saw that maternity clothing was very oversized, very poorly made, even the expensive stuff didn't look like anything anyone wore when they weren't pregnant. So I said to this designer, I have this brilliant idea. I think I'll turn your business around. Don't do anything different about what you're designing. Let's just put the word maternity on some of the labels. Just call uh-huh. it maternity clothing. They're buying it anyway. You can yeah. charge whatever you want. He thought I was crazy. Basically said, you know, are you smoking crack? It wasn't a sexy industry at the time. You didn't, you didn't have, you know, people asking celebrities what they were wearing. It just wasn't like that. So anyway, I like so many entrepreneurs, although I wouldn't have called myself that then, but looking back, I couldn't get the idea out of my head. I was up at night thinking about it. I finally went to him and said, 
I'm not a designer, but I need to figure out how to do this. I'm sorry. You know, I'm going to leave and try to do this. I never thought it would be successful. I thought I would do it kind of made to order for a few friends, really. And then uh, get pregnant, have my children, raise them. I didn't even know if I'd work. I mean, you know, I didn't have any grand plan. Cut to, I started that business. I was doing it made to order. I was my only, I was the only employee. I was everything. And I um, didn't even have a store or anything like that. I had a telephone and a fax machine uh, just to make it short. And I don't mean this at all braggy. It was just, I got very, very lucky. When I sold the brand 10 years later, it was the largest maternity apparel brand in the United States. And the whole industry had kind of changed and it was a very hot industry. So mm. I'm you know, really proud of that. I don't know how I did it. I feel very, very lucky. I stumbled into it and that's what happened. From what I, I've been reading about you, um, you kind of didn't really uh, enjoy selling that. You, you sort of felt like it took a part of your life away and you wanted to continue to somehow get involved with that. What happened? Yeah. You know, uh, 10 years later, I was getting a divorce. I had children that were nine and 11 years old. I was working around the clock. Like people always talk about women having it all and balancing it all. Yeah. I, I, this is unpopular to say, but it's not true. It's impossible. Something has to give. It's not whether you're a woman or a man, it's impossible to, you know, I was traveling like crazy. I was so involved in my business. I lived and breathed that I never turned it off. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's who I am, but that's what it took to get a business, to be an entrepreneur and get a business like that to where I wanted it to be. So cut to, I'm doing all that. I don't see my children all that much. I feel like they're being raised by my housekeeper and I got an offer you know, for what can seem to me like a, you know, kind of a, the old godfather joke. I got an offer I couldn't refuse <laughs> uh, and I wasn't looking to sell it. So I took it. And the great news was, I feel like I had, I really could dig into, you know, my children in a way that I didn't realize how much I was missing until I was there doing it with them. Uh, but I really missed it. And it had become kind of my identity. Like I, I became Liz Lang of Liz Lang Maternity. And I, you know, it was just kind of strange not to have my stores. Sold the name. Sold the name. I sold the name. So that was strange. But then I was able to, so I realized I, I had to be back in fashion. So I did this whole line for home shopping. I'm not allowed to, I wasn't allowed to do maternity anymore because I had sold that. Yeah. Right. But I did regular ready to wear clothing for the home shopping network. And I love doing that. And then, as you mentioned, you know, at the top of this, I ended up, um, during COVID, I really wanted my own brand again. And I was kind of debating build a brand, buy a brand, build a brand, buy a brand. And this brand fig that I was a fan of that I was wearing a lot. I heard that it was, you know, uh, going under and that it was going to be for sale. So I bought it and have rebooted it. And I've spent the last three years doing that. And I, I love it. It feels like I'm me again in terms of my career. And also my children are, you know, 22 and 24. So they don't, you know, they, they want very little to do with me. <laughs> so talk a little bit about fig and uh, uh, how it's, uh, I read about it as caftans, flowing dresses. How, how would you say it differentiates itself from other? Well, that was definitely true. Um, when I bought it, I think it was most known as a resort wear brand with the most beautiful caftans and easy dresses. And that's really what I wore from it all the time. Very, 
with incredible prints and even and 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 beating and you know detail upon detail upon detail it was not you know it's not quiet luxury as th things were it was it was kind of loud luxury <laughs> uh but i um and i loved it and it felt it was easy and comfortable and at a time when everyone was wearing sweatpants because of covid i felt like i could wear fig and i was as comfortable but i felt i always felt like i looked chic so loved it loved it bought it and now what i've done with it is I want it to be much more than a resort wear brand because I don't always live in a resort community and neither do my friends. So, you know, I think it still has the best sort of resort wear and caftans in the business. <laughs> but today we do a lot more than that. You know, we do all sorts of separate pieces from blouses and pants and skirts and sweaters and knits, all with our signature kind of global nomadic uh, spirit. And, and even though, you know, you can certainly find some things from us that aren't you know, bold, 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 but I think we are known for our bold uh, use of prints and colors. Where is Fig sold? What's what? Well, it's, I'm going to say that it's spelled strangely. It's a French spelling, which is F-I-G-U-E, although it's pronounced Fig, just like here in America. And so we've got our website, fig.com, but it's also at Saks, it's at Neiman's, it's at Shopop, it's at all sorts of specialty retailers, you know, all around the country. Um, so it's, you know, it's pretty easy uh, to find. Um, and thank you for that. So yes, we, we you know, I, I love it. And we've got a great team. And it's really how I spend my most of my time these days. Tell me a little bit about Justin or family. Uh, I believe it launched, I saw it in the New York Times, uh, an article about it two years ago. And yes. it seems to be a uh, an ongoing, there are episodes. And I think you're up to like edit episode. What, what's the plot? No, no, so here's the deal. It's a podcast. It's a podcast that has eight episodes. I was always thinking about writing a memoir, about writing my life story. And my, one of my closest friends is the is the New Yorker writer um, and also a best-selling author, Arielle Levy. And Arielle had always said to me, your story is incredible. You have to do this yes. to help you. And so when, when, again, this all happened during COVID. During COVID, Arielle, I call her Ari, Ari got a deal with Sony to do podcasts for them. I, I, you know, she, they wanted her to do podcasts. She came to me and she said, let's do an episode. I want to do something on people that have led unexpected lives. You've led an unexpected life. Let's do an episode on you. So we did that. Sony heard it. It was just one episode and they apparently loved it and said, let's dedicate the whole season to Liz and her family. So I told my story I got a bunch of my family members participated and told sort of their view on our family. So some of the broader sense of my family growing up here in New York City in a, you know, again, I say this without any bragging because spoiler alert, we lost the money. But at the time, ah. very rich, very high profile. Hell, tell us a little yeah. bit about when, when you were growing up, your father and your uncle. Tell us about what that was all about. Well, it's just that, you know, we lived here in New York City at a time when it was a little bit new, unless you were sort of an old German Jew, like the Loeb's or the Warburg's or something. You know, it was kind of new that these new Jews were making money and moving to places like Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue and the Hamptons. It was kind of this moment. And my uncle was a genius. Uh, absolutely. He's no longer alive. He was an absolutely genius um, businessman. And he, um, you know, came up for the concept in the 60s of leasing computers and at a time when IBM wasn't doing that and, and you know, then pivoted and tried to buy uh, uh, Chase Manhattan Bank. That didn't work because of anti-Semitism, but whatever. And, you know, really became one of the most successful businessmen 
in the world. He was the richest self-made person under the age of 29 when he was in his 20s. And what was very unusual about him was his generosity, not just to a, a myriad of philanthropic causes, which he was, but also to his own family. So he really didn't well, just become successful himself. He took his uh, Saul, Saul Steinberg. It's Saul Steinberg. Yes. He took his brother, my father, and his sisters and his parents along for the ride. And he yeah. was incredibly, incredibly generous. And so growing up, and he, uh, the last name Steinberg was very well known in New York City. Um, and maybe in the United States, I don't know. So if I met people, they kind of, it was just kind of a strange, it was an interesting and strange childhood because today we see a lot of mass affluence and a lot of hedge funders and all different people. People are rich, people with private planes. But back then it was a little more unusual. So- this was Reliance, right? It was, they had a business called Reliance Group Holdings. Yes. Yeah, I, saw two, I saw two interesting things that came about in the same year, which was 2001. And you can tell us a little about them. One was bankruptcy and another one was the World Trade Center. They occurred the same year. It was a really crazy year um, yeah. for the world. And then for me personally, one is that something I never, ever, ever, ever thought could possibly happen was that my father's business went bankrupt. My, well, really it was my uncle's business. My father was the uh, COO. So that, you know, was shocking and very life-changing. Uh, also, I was at a really um, incredible point in my own business, which was that my maternity line had become so successful that I was doing a fashion show at New York's uh, Fashion Week, right. uh, which the official shows I was doing was, uh, was at the time, um, whatever. I was doing a show in the tents and um, and my show was actually the morning of September 11th. That was just a random date at that time, a day that I was very much looking forward to. I was going to be unveiling at that show uh, my newest partnership, which was with Nike. It was Liz Lang for Nike, um, maternity athletic apparel. First time Nike had ever co-branded their swoosh logo with anybody other than a famous athlete. So it was a huge deal for me. And just a big deal in general. But of course, that morning, my show was going on as the World Trade Center was being hit. How how far was the show, uh, the, that fashion show from? We the were at um, we were in Bryant Park, which is like what we'd say 40th Street and 6th Avenue. And the Trade Center is downtown. Right. I mean, it's, a couple uh, miles. yeah, a couple miles. I was one of the obviously very, very lucky people that day because everybody in my life, both my family and my friends, they, I knew where they were. They were in the tents at Bryant Park watching <laughs> the show. So I wasn't looking for any, even my children, I wasn't looking for anybody, but I walked out of those tents. You know, I, it was supposed to be a day of press interviews. Again, I'm not saying this is sad for me. I just sort of explaining it. What I had was supposed to be a day of major press interviews. Good morning, America, to the date to today's show, CNN, all covering it live. And I walked out into a world that had fallen apart, that had changed completely. It was, it was, as you know, all New Yorkers, it was the most shocking, horrifying, you know, until, until October 7th, when I saw that happen in Israel, I had never experienced anything like that level of shock. And yeah. it was horrible. And it was, you know, not good for business, obviously, but, you know, I can't, it was a crazy year. And then a month later, I was diagnosed with cancer and I was only 35. I'm not saying I'm a victim. I'm, I'm great today. And it, you know, it was all fine, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a great year. <laughs> uh, so I call that episode of the podcast perestroika, I think. So, so yeah. Where are you going from here? You're, you're in your fifties, your kids are grown, you're remarried. 
Yeah, I'm remarried. I've got my two kids. I, I think it's all about, I'm not, you know, I've done the Just Enough Family. I'm not going to be doing any more episodes. I've told that story and I, you know, it's still popular and I'm thrilled, but I'm really focused on fig. Um, you know, I've, I've created Grey Gardens. I've got a house in Palm Beach that I'm working on. I've done it, but I might want to redo it. But really it's about fig. That's really where I'm getting all my, you know, professional, um, you know, what, I don't know what it would be called, the satisfaction. So it's really, you know, we're just at the beginning of growing that brand. I want to see it become, it's a small brand now, but I want to see it become a really major lifestyle brand. And that's, that's what we're working on. And um, what, uh, what do you, what do you uh, do at uh, out in the Hamptons? What do you like doing? This will wind up our show because we get 20 minutes to do all this. We did a lot. We did a lot, Dan. Yes, we did. I'm very, I'm, I'm not your typical Hamptons person. I don't, I, I basically, especially with all the traffic these days, I like to be at my house. I sit outside, I read, we've got a pool, we've got a tennis court, we're near to the beach. I, you know, so, and I have friends come to me. I love, we host, I host all the time, big lunches, big dinners. I always like there to be an abundanza of food. I don't mind leftovers. I just don't want a spare table. I can't stand it. I don't want to see a scarcity of food. I want to be able to say to anybody, even five minutes before dinner, oh, just come. Oh yes, bring so-and-so. So it's a lot of sort of my, and it's multi-generational. My mother lives nearby. My kids are always there with their friends. And that is my favorite part of the Hamptons. I'm not part of the Hamptons magazine. And there's again, nothing wrong with it. I just not part of that scene and i love the hamptons bag it's all good it's just not me well thank you for being on my show it's been a pleasure to have you on the show and um uh, i'll i hope to see you and we'll see you in in town i hope so thank you so sure. much sure bye-bye